Do you think life is simpler after you retire? For some, it's actually more complicated when facing issues about health, estate plans, probate, long-term care, and more. That's why attorney CPA Joe Cordell hosts Elder Talk with Joe Cordell, providing smart solutions for seniors and an open forum for older adults with important questions about their future. Here's attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Welcome to another episode of Elder Talk. This week, we wanted to uh, come back, as is our, our tradition. We circle back periodically, and we take some questions. What we do, because sometimes we'll take the questions in advance, or we just identify questions that have been asked uh, previously. And we want to choose topics, though, that we think are of interest to you and are relevant to a lot of people. So with that, uh, we'll launch, Susan, with our questions for now, for this week. All right, let's do it. I love doing this simply because it takes this very kind of an abstract topic and takes it down into the practical. Because, you know, we want everything to be in this nice, neat little box, and families just don't always work that way. They don't fit into boxes very well. No. So here's our first question. What can I do if I believe that my brother used undue influence on our 95-year-old mother to get her to amend her trust? So he's maybe she's maybe thinking they want to challenge it. He took her to a lawyer to change the original trust, which split everything evenly between my brother and me. The new trust now goes to him and then to his kids. So apparently she got wow. mixed out. Yeah, that's pretty. That is a big change. That's intense. My mother began experiencing dementia three years ago. And before this, she'd always treated everyone in the family equally. He also had her sign a power of attorney and he hasn't let her let this person see or speak to her for the last two years. That sounds like a really intense situation. Yeah, that sounds like a textbook case of undue (laughs) influence. Really, I mean, all those elements, what the law looks for in identifying whether or not uh, there is a presumption of undue influence is they'll look at the extent to which somebody had a disproportionate uh, gift or disproportionate inheritance. They'll look whether there was opportunity. Did they, the language that's used in cases is did they, procure the document or procure the estate planning or play a role in that. It can mean transportation. It can be making the making the appointment. It can mean sitting in, as I suspect was the case here, probably sat in on this meeting. And then you throw in the fact that you have the, the psychological or cognitive deterioration, which I assume there are records supporting that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the ingredients there, this is a classic case. And here's, here's why it's so important to be able to meet that threshold of a presumption is because the burden shifts. When you show that those suspicious elements are present in a particular case, then the way the law works, at least in Missouri, is the responsibility shifts to the other side of the table to prove that there wasn't undue influence. Oh, really? And and that's much, much more difficult. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lawyer who has participated in that process is at risk a little bit, certainly from an ethical standpoint, because lawyers are supposed to be protective of their client's best interest, which means exploitation of this sort is among you know the top concerns or big red flag. So there's a question about whether the lawyer did his or her job well. And there could be potential liability on the part of the lawyer uh, to the extent that there was negligence in participating in this process. So I see... I see a lot of targets that this could very well end up uh, being overturned, a document like this. There are a number of lessons here. And one of the lessons is whenever you're going to do your estate planning, even though it's very tempting for you to bring in that child or that relative or family member that you you probably – do favor in some ways that maybe the person you showed up at the meeting with 
you know, mm-hmm. probably. And you may intend to show certain advantages or favoritism to this person in the distribution of the assets. That's not a bad thing, but you have to know that if you've allowed them to participate in this process, to be present at, at the meeting with the lawyer, not to mention make the appointment, bring them in, et cetera. I've seen it where even the child is paying, you know, wants to pay for the attorney fees. I mean, it's really setting up this this client to have their intentions undone hmm. by an action for undue influence or um, uh, fraud, uh, various things that can be alleged. And you can avoid that. The attorney needs to tell their client, look, you need to know that we should leave out this person that you really want to help, you really want to favor. Then the way to do that is let's not embroil them into this whole process the way we might otherwise so that we can protect them from this charge that we suspect is going to come down the road. And when you have disproportionate distributions like this and somebody participating, as this family member did, it's the lawyer's job. It's mm-hmm. really it's a competency question. Uh, the lawyer, if they're competent, they should be able to foresee and advise a client so that the client's goals are achieved. Okay, so that kind of makes me think about a particular story that I've been following a little bit in the news, and that's this Jeffrey Epstein case. Oh, so we're he, regarding that will and trust. Yeah, I mean, so he commits suicide, but two days before he commits suicide, he changes his will and puts everything in a trust. And t- the two people that are supposed to be his executors and who benefit a lot from this, I mean, I don't know that they're the, you know, the beneficiary, but they benefit a lot are his two attorneys. And mm-hmm. I'm kind of thinking, well, so if the attorney's supposed to be above reproach here, isn't that a little bit, um, Yeah, I don't know. It, I'm it, not going to say it's illegal or crooked or anything, but it's, it jumped out at me when I was reading the news story. It raises red flags, all sorts of red flags. You know, there, you could start with, are there going to be allegations that he wasn't of sound mind, given all the circumstances that, that uh, surrounded him at the time? And clearly he was under incredible pressure and... Yeah, I would, I would think being accused of that, everything is, your world is turned upside down. You're in a prison and probably going to jail for a long time. I yeah. mean, how, isn't that easy to make that case that you wouldn't be of sound mind? It's not easy because the bar for um, sufficient competency to execute a will, as it's called, is uh, a low bar. It's among the lowest bars in the law, as a matter of fact. Um, you, you know, for you to be able to make a decision about who's to receive your stuff, you really have to meet these very low standards of knowing uh, who the natural objects of your affection, that's the phrase that you use, meaning knowing who your family is. Okay. And and also knowing what the extent is of your property. And then knowing what is this transaction that you're engaging in, gen- in very general terms, meaning, oh, I know I'm signing a piece of paper that's going to transfer my stuff to these people I care about when I die. So that's a pretty low bar. You could have somebody whose dementia is significant, and yet they have sufficient competency to engage in that sort of hmm. transaction. Um, is I the would, bar the same for a trust? Uh, uh, well, there's there are some opinions arguing about that, but for the most part, yes. It, it really involves the complexity of the trust. Okay. Uh, if it's a, a simple trust, like your typical revocable trust, then yes, it's probably going to be the same thing. Uh, but at some point, it starts to take on the the feel of a 
contract, of even a commercial contract, when some of these trusts, like irrevocable trusts, tax plan, et cetera, those can get very complicated. So then maybe the bar is a little higher than it would otherwise be. Um, but But I would say that in this situation, if we move to another issue that jumps out, I would say one thing that was likely to come up in that might be the extent to which the lawyer's benefited from this. Now, I can tell you that there's there's ethical rules out there in which they say it's okay for a lawyer to suggest, to not advocate for, but I think they could could certainly mention, if not suggest, that, that they would act as executors or personal representatives. Um, that's not considered the same thing as, for example, asking for a gift out of a document, which is strictly forbidden when you're doing estate planning. Uh, for a lawyer to turn out to be the beneficiary. Oh, okay. So we know that's forbidden. But for the most part, you know, for the lawyers to, to come in and suggest their participation this way, it's probably okay, but but uh, it depends on how it's handled. I think one of the more interesting things about this transaction, and we, there's a lot, let me hurry to add, there's a lot we don't know, mm-hmm. ju- just a whole lot we don't know. And part of that was intentional. I mean, um, Epstein wanted to to have his estate essentially passed through an irrevocable trust to the extent he to through excuse me through a revocable trust to the extent he could. So when he prepared this document within days apparently of his suicide as I understand it. Right, too. Um so I mean his intention was to transfer what assets he could into his trust so that uh, so that the trust would have the privacy that you don't have with a will. Anytime you die at the will, I mean this is a lesson for everyone to know is that the public will have access to the provisions in your will. They'll get to see how much was in your estate, who it went to, all those those juicy bits of informa- <laughs> information that a lot of people like to, to read about. That we all follow in the gossip yeah, column. Yeah, and, and whereas if you put it in a trust, then it's going to be private, unless, of course, there's some lawsuit and, and then the trust is unwound in some way like that. But, but the general rule is trusts are private. And that's one reason people like trust is is that they don't go through the probate process. Now, in this case, let me hurry to add that this trust may be undone. And one reason is that uh, there are a lot of creditors out there, and among them are the people who have claims for this sort of, whether it's sexual abuse, mm-hmm. whether whatever, you know, um, uh, frauds, torts, um, assaults he might have engaged in. Those people are out there with their lawyers, and they have claims that they're wanting to assert. Now, if there's not a judgment at the date of his death, mm-hmm. um, then just looking at I'm not an expert in debt or credit or law, uh, but for the most part, the general rule is if there isn't a claim at the time of your death and, and thereafter you have the personal representative whose, whose job it is to defend the trust for the sake of existing creditors as well as the intended beneficiaries in that order, um, then you have claimants who I don't know if their claim would survive his death. This is beyond my area mm, of, of, okay. of practice. Uh, tort lawyers would have more familiar with, familiarity with this. We know the, the reverse scenario where, where someone who has died due to a tort, then sometimes their estate can bring a wrongful death claim on part of the estate as well as the survivors who had a loss as a result of that bad behavior, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. Whereas this is the reverse. Mm -hmm. This is where the wrongdoer has died. Right. And there wasn't a claim against his estate before he died that was at least no judgment was declared. So now you have to wonder the extent to which these claimants are going to access the money. I would think that his brother, who is the sole beneficiary, as I hear, 
Um, we don't know for sure because we don't know the terms of the trust, but the surviving relative that I've heard mentioned is his brother. Did, did, did Epstein have a daughter or son? I think he had a son, didn't he? I don't know. They mentioned his soul sole relative was his brother. And that's what I read is I'm not sure he's named as a beneficiary. That's that's what I keep hearing is that he's the one that could challenge all of this. Well, anyway, whoever it is, uh, and, and hopefully there's agreement between those people, whether mm-hmm. it's brother or his daughter uh, or son, um, it might be in their interest to take some portion of these monies and set it aside in a in a trust or an account that that would be dedicated for these claimants and then let them go at it, bring their claims, get their judgments, and have it understood that this pool of resources will be uh, held in escrow for the purpose of paying these claims. That allows, if they can extract a deal like that, that would be kind of a global deal. It'd have to include everyone, mm. kind of like settling these class action claims is where you get global deals that, that allows the, the remainder of the money to be free to go to whoever it would otherwise go to. They wouldn't have to have a judgment of guilty, though? I mean, he was just arrested, right? He wasn't convicted yet. No, no. It, they can bring a, a civil claim, and it's easier, too, to get a judgment right. because a, a criminal conviction is, is beyond reasonable doubt, which is pretty high standard of proof, whereas in this case they can proceed with their civil claims, like they did with O.J. I mean, mm-hmm. he's found uh, right. not guilty for purposes of, of criminal, but but they won in the courts on the civil, which is more likely than not. It's right. called preponderance of the evidence. Uh, so that it that's going to be a mess, however it goes. Because <laughs> when you have that much money floating around and this many people who were wronged, um, it's going to be a long, hard road, I suspect, right. getting this resolved. Right. Well, let's go back to some more normal people who don't have millions and millions of millions Thankful of Epstein dollars. is not normal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And let's kind of look at what, what they might be thinking about. All right. So is there a waiting period or penalty if I sell my mother's house and car totaled at $90,000 so she can qualify for Medicaid to use for assisted living or nursing home? So is there any waiting period for the house and the car? Well, there a car is allowed. Um and a car, so long as it's used for transportation, as long as it has a, or an intention to be used for transportation, even if, in fact, it may not be used very much for that because of the person's condition. Still, it has to be plausible that it will continue to be useful for that purpose. And there's no dollar ceiling for the amount of money that can be dedicated to transportation. But the moment you convert that into cash, then it's lost the status that was protected. I mean, it's it's one it's in one of those very few categories in which there's protection for Medicaid purposes okay. and assets. And among them is you can have a home, uh, a home that can have considerable value, depending on the state, up to over $550,000 in equity in Missouri. Uh, but the moment that you sell the home and you have cash, then then the cash is then not the protected. Then the cash is not protected. So the same the, the same concept would apply to uh, to the car. Okay, so are they better off to just really hold on to it Often, and move into an assisted living, even if you don't drive it much? Yeah, for purposes of qualification, yeah, because that that uh, means that they have fewer resources to present problems in the qualification process. Okay, and how long would you have to keep the car then before you could sell it? Well, once you qualify, you still have to update. 
Now, sometimes if you have a spouse that's living, there's lots of opportunities for, for spouses to be able to use resources because the, the uh, spousal impoverishment rules are intended to allow certain assets to be available to your spouse that they're called the community spouse, the person that's not inside the facility. That person needs to have access to transportation, housing, income. So uh, there is a good chance that the vehicle can continue to be used uh, through that means. Otherwise, um, someone can technically, as long as they have, for example, on the house, an intention to go home, that okay. can be pretty fictional. <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, it, it can be a pretty great long shot. But still, it would mean that as long as they're alive, the house cannot be taken and sold. Similar thing with a vehicle. Um, so it really is a, a judgment call. Now, these things are not to be understood, especially with the house, not to be understood as protecting the house forever. Remember, this is only while you're alive or you have a spouse that's alive. Otherwise, when, when you pass away, there's going to be an F, what's called asset recovery. There's going to be asset recovery t- through the Missouri Attorney General's office to repay the state for however much money you soaked up in terms of Medicaid benefits during your lifetime. Okay. So you're not necessarily just going to pass that along to your Yeah, your some kids people think, oh, that my house is exempt. Mm-hmm. Well, not really. Mm-hmm. It, that requires further discussion. <laughs> and ways to, to yeah. plan Yeah, you need to it. think that through. Often there are ways, incidentally, that you can permanently protect your house, but, but it does mean planning. Okay, so let's kind of talk about planning. This person wants to move. All right, but they want to know. So I don't necessarily want to stay in Missouri. I want to move to Florida where it's warm for the winter. So do I need to change my estate plan every time I move? They recognize that different subjects or different states have different uh, rules and requirements. Is guardianship the same no matter where you live? How about real estate? If I move frequently due to my company and just where I want to live, is there anything um, in my will that I know will always be valid or do I need to update it every single time? Well, um, there's generally speaking, you don't need to update your will every time you move. Um, for the most part, all states, it's called comity, C-O-M-I-T-Y. It means that states want to recognize the laws of other states so that, for example, if you have a will that's drafted in Missouri and you move to Florida, Florida will acknowledge the will. They'll interpret it according to the Missouri rules that you had in mind. But you need to know that that they still have the right to make decisions about real estate within their borders, especially real estate. Hmm. In some states, personal property as well. So you do end up with what's called this ancillary probate. And and I can tell you that's a headache, ancillary probate. It doesn't invalidate your documents, and I think that was perhaps this person's primary concern. But it is a headache for those that come out that they are her intended beneficiaries because they're going to have to, after the gavel going down, in the example I gave you a few moments ago, the gavel would probably go down in Missouri initially. That's where the will would be probated. Okay. But then there would have to be what's called an ancillary probate. What that means is opening a probate in the other state to get a judgment so that the, that state is bringing down the gavel of Florida court, which is what Florida cares about, saying, yeah, we acknowledge this will. It's a valid will, and we're going to let this real estate that's owned in Florida pass according to that will. But you have to have the gavel go down in probate in the state of Florida hmm. to approve transferring Florida's property. Even though they're doing it according to the will, they're, they're acknowledging the will. So it's not that, that, that uh, because they had property in Florida, they moved to Florida, that they invalidated their Missouri planning. They didn't invalidate it. 
but they just create further headaches. So really, they don't have to update their estate plan or update their will, but it probably makes sense to. It's probably a good idea to, yes. Okay, so let's go ahead and let's talk about trusts and revocable trusts. We've talked about that's the kind of trust Jeffrey Epstein had. So let's let's ask a question about that. All right. If the creator of a revocable trust wants to make a beneficiary a co-trustee and make the current successor trustee a beneficiary, does she have an obligation to inform the current trustee of the change? So simply can the trust's creator make whatever changes that they want without telling anybody? That's the general question. Uh, and yeah, they can. I mean, the thing about a revocable trust is that this is its virtue and its huge liability is that it's always continually subject to change. So it's good in the sense that we change our minds about stuff, mm-hmm. right? And we decide to maybe favor one person over another, take somebody out entirely as a beneficiary. I'm sure no one's ever heard of that. No. But but you can't do that if it's an irrevocable trust. I mean, you it's in cement to a great extent what you're going to do, subject to a few rules. Um, in this case, we're talking about what is called a standard revocable trust, a living trust. People have heard that phrase before. It means really a device whose purpose is primarily to avoid probate. also has some lifetime benefits. But for the most part, this leaves in the hands of the person who created it, called the settlor, leaves in their hands the control over whatever they want to do with it. They can change anything. They can abolish it. They can blow it up. They can decide, I want to take all the money and give it to someone else, eliminate beneficiaries, and, yes, they can change trustees. Hmm. Now, they don't have to let the trustee know at the time they create the document. It's still valid. But it means that the trustee still has to accept their role. So let's assume someone is named as a trustee and they're not told about it. Okay. Or even that there's been a change to the trust and the trustee's not told about it. So finally the person passes away perhaps and somebody finds this trust and and they approach the trustee and say, you know, this you need to uh, commence management, uh, managing this in a fiduciary way, which is the phrase that's used a lot for trustees. And a trustee then can say, you know, I don't want to do this. I refuse to accept the role. Mm-hmm. Now, if they accept the role, then they may very well need a judge's permission to get out under some circumstances. Oh, really? So, yeah, yeah. So a trustee cannot be forced to accept the role of trustee, but once they do accept it, they can't just bail anytime they want to. There are rules that govern how they get out of the trust, and which kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. They've accepted a position of responsibility they didn't have to, so now they've got to... Uh, follow certain rules in order to get out what if they get into it and they realize it's going to take a lot longer than what they thought or a lot more time i mean i know someone who was working on his grandfather's estate for five or six years and he did it pretty much full time well then they will need to petition the court that they're wanting to get out and the court may very well let them incidentally i mean the court to the extent that that it's not practical or it's unreasonable or something else is going on in the court wants to help them. But on the other hand, they want to be sure that there's an alternative in place. So it is a lot of work to Mm -hmm. be able to be sure that that the beneficiaries don't suffer due to somebody who previously said yes. That's the argument, again, to those who say, well, isn't that a hardship on a trustee? Yes, and that's the reason you don't want to casually become a trustee Mm -hmm. (laughs) because you have all these fiduciary duties. And and if you're not being paid much, life's too short. Mm -hmm. You know, you can be sued. 
I mean, it's it's just a lot of responsibility. I don't think people realize when they agree to be a trustee. So when you name a trustee, how many times, I mean, how much do you prepare for that? How many uh, if-then situations do you have? If so-and-so doesn't do it, then. If so-and-so doesn't do it, then. I mean, how many do you name? Well, there, there are several ways of dealing with it. One is you can name just a series of successor trustees, you know, one, two, three, four. And in answer to that question, probably no more than the third. I mean, at some point, it's going to start to look like this is a really bad trust if nobody <laughs> wants within a mile of it. Um, but often a better solution is maybe you name one, then you name the second one. But after the second one, you perhaps could introduce a device like allowing a trust protector, a, a party you named who sits off to the side. They don't have direct responsibilities except when called upon. Uh, and they could be the person who makes the decision given what they know at that time. So, in other words, they're ahead. They're at the top of that horizon down the road, and they can see better. Hmm. They'll see options that perhaps you can't see now in making that decision. Would that typically be an attorney? It could be, yeah. It's not unusual for that to be an attorney. And, and the reason it's not as hard to get people to be a trust protector is, again, they don't have daily responsibilities. They only may be called upon occasionally to make a decision or to rule on something. So it, it's kind of an attractive position, and it's great for people who create trust because it gives flexibility. Uh, but often a better solution is this person you named as a trustee. This is somebody that I'll assume that you have confidence in. So if they don't want to do it for whatever reason, maybe it's a lot of work, maybe they've had a death in the family, it could be lots of things where they just can't do it. Um, in that case, maybe they can name the successor. So many people will say that a trustee resigning or leaving or their successor will identify another oh. trustee if, if they can't do it any longer. So that that is a, a solution that covers a lot of possibilities. Okay. Okay. Well, let's shift gears a little bit and let's go back to the Medicare, Medicaid question because that seems to be just – that's always – out in everybody's mind. It's huge. I mean, we, we're living in a world where people are living longer. That means, as a practical matter, for many people who are older, they're going to spend some period of time in a long-term care facility. Mm -hmm. Those are very, very expensive. Medicare doesn't cover it. And it is. It's a big, big issue. It's the elephant in the room mm -hmm. in terms of planning financially for your lives as you get older. It is. It's the unknown, and it's the one thing people so often say, I don't ever want to have to do. And yet I talked, I just had breakfast with someone who, or lunch with someone, and they said, oh, I don't, my parents need it, but they're not going. And so. So now the parents are saying, I'm curious though, is this where the parents are saying, uh, I don't want to spend $10,000 a month, I don't have the money, or the parents saying, I don't want to be in some cold, sterile facility? That's, that's, ex that second one. They yeah. don't want to be in a facility. Matter of fact, the I, the woman I was talking with, her parents, um, one of them had had a stroke a few years ago, and the mother had been taking care of them. The mother has developed some health issues. They've been trying and talking, and mom is not going. Dad is not going, you, and they won't even bring anybody in. And so the family is picking up the slack and trying desperately to try and honor their wishes of they want to be aging at home. Um. It, we, we should mention now, you have a guest lined up for next week. Uh-huh, we do. Who's an authority in this area. We've got, you've got to make a note we come back to this discussion. Okay, we will. Because I, I hear it over and over how 
you know, I don't want to end up in one of those institutions. Mm-hmm. And I just think people don't know. But we'll refrain from that part of the discussion. So, okay. so the question was. All right. So here's a question about qualifying and applying for Medicaid. So my mother, this person, is moving into an assisted living. She's always said that my brother could have the money from the sale of antiques in their house. Is she allowed to gift the contents of the house, including the valuable antiques, or will that cause the transfer penalty when she applies for Medicaid in two or three years? Well, I mean, antiques are assets, you know, and so it's going to be transferring assets. It, again, it, it's similar to a question we talked about earlier. Uh, your furnishings, as long as they are furnishings for that purpose, meaning that they're used in your house for your future needs, even though those are improbable, mm-hmm. then for the most part, those will be exempt. But the moment that you sell them, then suddenly it's a, a quote-unquote asset, and it's going to be counted. Uh, so I, I would think that in a case like that, whenever you gift, you need to understand that you're looking at a five-year look back. Okay. Uh, there are often better ways to accomplish that goal, but it has to be part of an overall strategy. And that's one thing that people... As they listen to us talk about this topic, I want them to walk away with at least a few key points. And one of those key points from this show and previous shows has to be that you can't simply make decisions like this in isolation. You can, but it's not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, it's better to think about all your assets and what what is the, the level of resources that your spouse will need if you do have a surviving spouse that's going to live in the community? There are a number of factors that come together to mean that you put together a plan that the whole plan may very well protect all your assets because you did it as a plan. Mm-hmm. But often what people will do is they will have read in Reader's Digest or wherever it might be. Uh, they will have read a comment that you should do this, you should do that. And they'll go ahead and make those moves. Um, and then they'll go to their lawyer and say, well, I've already done this, and this is what I have remaining. Mm-hmm. And and often the lawyer now is dealing with a far more limited options than he or she would have had if they could have looked at the whole picture and said, well, let, let's solve it this way. And um, and so I think that lawyers have to be allowed to to implement the strategies that are out there. And there are several out there. And these, incidentally, shouldn't be con- construed by – uh, by clients as simply loopholes that are questionable legally. I mean, a good lawyer in this area isn't going to take risks. They're going to do the things that they know have stood the test of either court decisions or are overtly permitted by the mm-hmm. Medicaid rules. Mm-hmm. And, and Medicaid has built-in rules to be of help if people will take the time to use them, but the person on the street's not going to know those. Mm-hmm. I mean, lawyers will know those, and maybe some people who advise within some of these some facilities will know some of those, but, but for the most part, people who practice in this area are the people who are going to be able to help. Yeah, I mean, I would think certainly if it's a, if it's a legal deduction, or, or that's not the right word, but if it's a legal thing that you can do, it's allowed, it's certainly permissible, then go ahead and do it. I mean, there's not a reason not to. You know, I'm sure, and I know this as having been a tax accountant years ago, uh, I can tell you that tax accountants pull their hair out, too, in a similar way. People will have read something as to how to get a deduction, and so they'll make these moves. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those moves can involve thousands of dollars in taxes, and they'll do it during the course of the year. And then they'll get to the end of the year, and they'll go into their CPA, 
and then they'll say, oh, I have some great news. I did this and I did that, and, and so I, this is going to save me a ton of money. And, and it's possible they were correct. It's possible. But at least half the time and probably a whole lot more than half the time, it wasn't done correctly or it screwed up something else at, that it was part of the, the, the CPA's plan. So anyway. So much on on professionals. Well, yeah, it comes back to having a plan. I think being the person on the street, it's much easier to just do things piecemeal and go, oh, well, we'll take, okay, oh, I did something. I did something rather than sitting down, making a really specific plan and talking with an attorney. And And, and people, I get it. They don't want to pay a lawyer or pay a CPA. I mean, I understand that. I mean, believe me, I pay CPAs and I pay lawyers Mm -hmm. just like everyone else does and probably a lot more. Because I, you know, I have these issues that come up, so I'll go to a lawyer, and I know the meter's running, but but I'm smart enough to know, and I think many people are who are professionals, especially that uh, that yeah, some people's advice costs money, but you're only going to pay that if you believe that they're going to save you a whole lot more, mm-hmm. and if you don't, then then of course you shouldn't be paying the money. But more often than not, a CPA is going to save you more than they're going to bill you, and similarly with a good lawyer. All right, so here's another Medicaid question because we have to plan. All right, so this one says, my mother is ill and requires long-term care, but hopes to one day return to her home. Now, my sister, who lives with my mother, is trying to put her name on my mother's house to protect herself if something happens to my mother that forces her into the Medicaid system. So she's not in there yet. Is this the right thing for my mother's welfare? So uh, families are messy, and she says, I feel like my sister is looking out for her own interests. Do you agree? You know, there is a special rule regarding a sibling. And I haven't looked at this in a while. Um, And I know this question was coming up or I would have checked it out. But I can tell you that there is a rule that says if a sibling is living with you, a sibling as opposed to a child, if a sibling is living with you and they have to own an equity interest in the house. So they can't just be living there. They have to own an equity interest in the house. Hmm. And they have to have been there living with you and presumably helping you, which that's almost always the case if you have somebody who's in need physically and they have a spouse living with or their, their sibling. And they have to have lived there one year. So if you put together those facts, sibling, uh, house, equity, interest, they have to be on the deed is what that means. Okay. It could be a third. It could be a half. It could be more. And they have to have lived in that arrangement for a year. Now, as I recall, those are the elements that will allow that house to be protected. And I think permanently as to the entirety of the house, I mm-hmm. believe. Now, I, uh, I haven't checked this. It could mean that just half is protected and the other half would be vulnerable eventually, not immediately when the person died. Then that's the worst case scenario. But I think there's a chance that the entire house may be protected for that hmm. sibling. Now, if that's only if it's a sibling. What if it's a child? If it's a child, the child has to have lived there for two years. Um, they don't have to have an equity interest. They don't have to be on the deed at all. Okay. And they have to, though, have played a role that postponed their parent having gone in for long-term care. So if you think about the policy reasons for that, it kind of makes sense for us as taxpayers. Because if you can have your son or daughter living there and they keep you off the public dole Mm -hmm. or the public expense for 24 months, then you do that math well, there's a good chance that when the person goes into a facility, if you let them qualify for Medicaid, they're probably not going to use up more than they saved mm-hmm. with this arrangement. So these are the sorts of rules and loopholes that, that people need to know about. Uh, while this may be called a loophole, it's not really a loophole. It's an exception. 
and it and it was consciously decided that this is in the taxpayer's interest. The mm-hmm. same thing with a sibling. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I did not. I've never heard that before. All right. So here's a question about dad. My dad currently lives in an adult home. We spent down his retirement and savings to pay for the facility. Then he applied for Medicaid. So the state is valuing. He has a motor home. So the. It's, it says the motorhome is valuing it, they're valuing it well over what it could possibly be sold for. So he still owns his home, and that can be placed on the market, but now he's unable to pay for care at the facility. So can I loan my dad the money to pay for his care and have him reimburse me when his house sells? Does that work? Yeah, there's no problem with, with that. Um, I, I don't see a problem in making advancing money as a loan for purposes of these costs because sometimes people will do that for a period of time before there is even an application submitted. Um, in this case, apparently they submitted an application they didn't qualify. Um, I would also suggest that you know there's this thing called a fair hearing, and a fair hearing is, um, is an opportunity for somebody who's made application and they were held to not be eligible due to excess assets, uh, for them to get a hearing that's relatively informal um, and and has rules that favor them in terms of the rules of evidence and whatnot. It's very favorable. Doubts are to be held in favor of the taxpayer, a few other things. So fair hearings are something to keep in mind as an option whenever you're saddled with a valuation that you think is not realistic Mm -hmm. or fair. Okay. So if I loan my parents' money, do I have to get something in writing that says, okay, we're going to loan you this money, and then when your house sells, I want to be paid back? Cause yeah. I'm, so do I have to get it all in writing and do some sort of a legal thing? or yeah. is a- Yes, and, and that's not hard to do. I mean, okay. it, it doesn't require a lawyer. I would suggest that they use a lawyer. It should be a, a note where you say, I'm hereby lending this money at X rate of interest, and if you intend for it to be secured by an asset – then you need to state that. That gets more complicated. So you may need a lawyer there because <laughs> then, then you have to state that it's secured by the asset and you need to file the lien against the property. Okay. So, um, but, but, but for the most part, whenever you're, you're not making gifts, you're making loans in this scenario as well as other qualification scenarios for benefits and whatnot or to protect you if you have a claimant in lawsuits and other things, then whenever you're, you're making a loan to your children or your loved one, Always, always, always get a note and have it signed, have a reasonable interest rate, and document payments on the interest if that's the term of the note. Or it could be simply a lump sum note that's due at a point in the future. Okay. All right. We have just a couple of minutes left. All right. We're sticking with um, nursing homes. So my mother has been receiving Medicaid in a nursing home for four years. Now we want to bring her home for the remainder of her life. Is there any disadvantage to doing that? No. No, uh, they can bring her home. And uh, and so the Medicaid would just stop. Right? Well, actually, it's possible that she would qualify for home and community-based care, which is a Medicaid program where you get benefits when you're living outside a facility. The criteria is a little different than the criteria, which is more asset-based for qualifying for institutional care. Uh, but people should know. A lot of people don't realize that. You can actually get money paid to you for home and community-based care. It's not going to be as much money, but it can be very helpful. And I'd bet since they qualified previously for institutional care, I'll bet they can qualify for the home and community-based services. And again, the, the policy reasons for this, the same thing. If, if As taxpayers, we'd be saying, of course we want to incentivize that behavior. So mm-hmm. if somebody is in a nursing home and they just get tired of it and 
And though they, they're qualified to be there, but they just want to go home. Mm-hmm. We want to say, amen, go, right? Mm-hmm. And to the extent that they in their right mind say that. And, and taxpayers save money and they're happier. So home and community-based services are something that's wonderful. So the criteria, did you say it's a different criteria? Yeah. I mean, it, it, so just having qualified earlier, they would have to go through the whole process again? N- no. Uh, what they would do is a representative from the Department of Senior Services would come out. They'd do an assessment to determine that they do need the assistance. So they'd do a home visit. Okay. And then they would report that, yes, there is need. Uh, so the eligibility specialist uh, would look at the assets and whatnot to determine whether or not there's need. And what I say there's a little bit of different uh, criteria is that it's a little more complicated when you have someone living out of their house um, and they have income coming in. And meanwhile, you have a spouse who may have income coming in. Uh, so the, the, uh, the calculations are a little different, that's all okay. I'm saying. And it's more focused on the revenues coming in than it is on the assets that are out there. Um, but but often somebody who qualified for institutional care, they're probably going to qualify for home and community-based. Okay. All right, I think we have time for one more. So after my mother has been living in a nursing home for a year, the, the nursing home just asked me to provide receipts for how I spent spend my mother's $60 a month lot, allotment from her Social Security check. They say it has always been a requirement. I'm her guardian and have never heard of that. Is this, is this a really really a rule that they care about the whole $60 a month? No, I'm a little surprised to hear that. I mean, it's a it's called a personal resource allowances. I think is what what she's talking about. And uh, generally, just by statute, that's recognized as money that's available for personal care. So typically, how that is used doesn't have to be accounted for. Yeah, I was going to say it doesn't seem like that, sixty dollars a month is worth worth even mentioning. Yeah. So now surplus monies of other sorts. I mean, like, it, often there'll be that as just the basis, but then other monies will be required for insurance and other things. So to provide documentation about those expenses is not unusual. So, for example, if if you're allowed to keep an additional 300 bucks a month to cover costs of existing insurance or other medical expenses that maybe preexisted, but, they, but they're not covered by the nursing home, so th- those sorts of things, yeah, it's reasonable to ask for documentation that you need that uh, money uh, to to spend because that money would otherwise be going against the cost of your Medicaid. But the personal resource allowance, that surprises me. I haven't heard that hmm. documentation required. I wonder if that might just be the facility saying, let's just get a little more. Maybe they're suspecting something else is going on. I don't know. Maybe they just don't like these people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure that never happens. <laughs> Have, right. we, have we been an hour? We have been an hour, so time to time has yes. flown. Yes, time flies. So next week, uh, we're having a guest. We will. April Haskins, who has been with us before and is always a wealth of information about this very topic, nursing homes and long-term, long-term care. care facilities, and she will be here with a lot of, a lot of good information, so you'll be sure to want to tune in. Wonderful. Another episode of Elder Talk. Till next week. Take care. You've been listening to Elder Talk with Joe Cordell, providing smart solutions for seniors with attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Listen again next Saturday for another edition of Elder Talk with Joe Cordell, sponsored by Cordell Planning Partners, your elder law advisors. For more information, visit eldercarelaw.com. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.